Mayday! Mayday! The soldiers heard the frantic call come over the radio. It was the winter of 1953, and everyone at K-13 Air Force Base in South Korea ran outside to see what was going on. What they saw was two Panther jets, America's new state-of-the-art fighter planes, streaking across the sky, returning from a bombing mission behind enemy lines. One of the jets was a giant fireball, hurtling toward the runway at 250 miles an hour, twice the usual landing speed. With a stream of fuel and smoke trailing behind it, the glow from its giant fire lighting up the dull February sky. The other jet seemed to be trying to guide the damaged plane home. The blazing jet had its landing gear up, meaning it was about to crash land on the concrete runway, and the life of the pilot inside was in peril. A fire crew rushed to spray flame-retardant foam on the runway so the inevitable explosion might be kept to a minimum. What most of the soldiers on the ground didn't know, what the pilot of the other plane didn't even know, was that the flyer at the controls of the damaged jet was the greatest hitter who ever lived. Marine Captain Theodore Samuel Williams, service number 037773. That's coming up on Fade Away. Hi everybody and a very pleasant Sunday to you, wherever you may be. Your page is so is Campanella. You come and do it too. Of course, my opinion of Kenya's performance. With the but Jack, I don't think this is my last year. I, I think I can play baseball about 15 to 20 more years. Mantle hits a high fly ball. It's deep left center field. It's way out there. It's way out there. Hello, and welcome to the debut episode of Fade Away the Baseball History Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Enders. And before we begin, let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to do here. Fade Away is a storytelling podcast. Although the subject is baseball history, to enjoy the show, you don't have to be a history nut or a stats geek, although I'm both of those things. I hope Fade Away will appeal to hardcore baseball enthusiasts, but also, just as importantly, to the captive audience riding along in the car. On this podcast, you won't hear discussions about whether war is better than OPS, although it is, or why Pee Wee Reese was better than Phil Rizzuto, although he was. You won't hear me dissecting the available closer options for your fantasy team. Instead, we're just going to tell interesting stories. In future episodes, you'll hear about a World Series play so hotly debated that the man who made it only revealed its secrets in a sealed letter to be opened after his death. You'll hear about the baseball legend who was nearly murdered by his socks. You'll find out how Cool Papa Bell got the name Cool Papa Bell. And if you tune into episode 4, you'll even hear a basketball story. And a really good one, too. Alright, enough explanation. Let's get on with the show. Today, two stories about baseball players who became pilots. In part 2 of this episode, which is available as a separate download, 
you'll hear how Cubs legend Ken Hubbs overcame his fear of flying. But first, let's get back to Ted Williams and that crash landing in Korea. Ted Williams never wanted to go to war. Not in World War II and not in Korea. He was passionate about three things in life. Hitting, fishing, and photography. And those were the only three things he ever really wanted to do. In 1941, as a cocky 22-year-old, he had an unbelievable batting average of 406, becoming the last batter ever to top the 400 mark. The next season, he hit almost as well, winning the American League Triple Crown, but nobody cared about his hitting anymore. The country was at war, and all the press cared about in 1942 was whether Ted Williams would sign up to go fight Hitler. At the beginning of the season, his draft board had classified him 3A, someone who was healthy enough to fight, but who had dependents for whom they were the sole source of support. In Ted's case, this was true. He was, in fact, supporting his mother financially. He got the same deferment anyone else in that situation would have gotten. But the press, as the press will do, created a story where there really wasn't one. Every day, barbed news articles poked at Williams over his deferment. They did everything short of calling him a coward. The draft board caved to public pressure and reclassified him 1A. And when Williams appealed that decision, the newspapers ratcheted up their efforts to portray him as yellow. The public turned on him. Hate mail poured in. Quaker Oats canceled an endorsement deal. A Boston newspaper even hired a private detective to go snoop on his mom in San Diego. You would have thought Teddy Ballgame bombed Pearl Harbor himself, Williams said. In fact, Ted had no objections to joining the military. He knew it was inevitable, but he decided to appeal on principle for the right to have the draft system treat him like any other potential soldier, instead of singling him out for early induction just because he was an athlete. Williams won his appeal and remained classified 3A. He decided he'd made his point, though, so he immediately went to the nearest recruitment office and signed up to be a fighter pilot in the Navy. They agreed to let him attend his aviation classes at night so he could finish out the 1942 season with the Red Sox and pay off an annuity he'd purchased for his mom. Many who knew Williams suspected he'd have a hard time in the military, since he was opinionated, bitched a lot, and had an independent streak a mile wide but he turned out to be a diligent and ambitious soldier. Most ballplayers who signed up for the service, especially those with, say, 56-game hitting streaks, never saw combat. They usually spent their enlistment playing sports and turning themselves over to be used by the military's propaganda machine. Ted Williams wanted none of that. If he was going to be a soldier, he was determined to be the best damn soldier there was. I don't want any soft berth teaching gymnastics, he grumbled. Most fighter pilots were college graduates, and Ted, with his high school education, had to work doubly hard to keep up in the advanced mathematics and physics courses. He studied long hours and followed the rules. He was also highly intelligent. He mastered intricate problems in 15 minutes, which took the average cadet an hour, said his Red Sox teammate Johnny Pesky, who was in the same courses. Williams completed training phases in Massachusetts, then Indiana, North Carolina, and finally, Florida, where he became one of the elite 10% of Navy flyers who were accepted to become fighter pilots in the Marines. But Ted Williams's commanding officers had a different vision for his service to his country, 
than Williams himself did. After all, the military didn't need more pilots. They had trained 62,000 of them, but possessed nowhere near that number of planes for them to fly. So after earning his wings, Williams was assigned to stay at his base in Sarasota, Florida, and teach others how to fly. His commanding officers also forced him to play on the camp baseball team for PR purposes, even though that was the last thing he wanted to do. Williams spent most of the rest of the war in Sarasota. Eventually, he was sent to the Pacific Theater, but he was still in San Francisco, waiting to be shipped out when the Japanese surrendered and the war ended. Ted Williams never saw a day of combat in World War II, but he did fly over 1,000 hours in fighter planes, 300 of them as an instructor. After the war, Ted, like most pilots, stayed enlisted in the reserves, although he believed he had a gentleman's agreement with the Marines. They wouldn't call him up for active duty as long as he made occasional PR appearances on their behalf. But the Marines had royally screwed up. After World War II, they had discharged every active duty fighter pilot, and when the Korean War began six years later, they were forced to call up a bunch of pilots from the reserves. Only they didn't call up the active reserves, the Marines who had been drilling and flying planes every month since the last war ended. Instead, they called up the inactive reserves, like Captain Ted Williams, people who hadn't touched a control stick in six years. Williams was pissed to be recalled. I was 34 years old, he said. I had already served in World War II. I didn't think it was fair. I didn't think it was right to be called up again. Williams' recall to active duty for Korea smelled so fishy, in fact, that some historians believe it was a flat-out mistake, a clerical error on the military's part, or that perhaps Williams was once again singled out for duty because of his fame. In any case, Williams once again traded his $100,000 baseball contract for the $4,200 annual salary of a captain in the Marine Corps. Though enlisted against his will and hopping mad about it, Williams approached Korea the same way he'd approached World War II, by trying to become the best pilot he could be. He was excited because he'd get to fly a jet plane, a type of aircraft new to the military, and for that matter, to the world. With a top speed of 600 miles per hour and a max altitude of 8 miles high, Williams loved the feeling of exhilaration and freedom he got from his sleek, navy blue Panther jet. The plane was equipped with four 20mm machine guns, 760 rounds of ammunition, and up to 3,500 pounds worth of bombs. Before being deployed to Korea, Ted underwent several months of jet training as well as cold weather survival training to prepare for the harsh Korean winter. In January 1953, Ted and his fellow Marines arrived at a desolate camp near Bridgeport, California, a starkly beautiful locale near the steep eastern slopes of the unforgiving Sierra Nevada. They were dropped off at 13,000 feet in the dead of winter, given some thermal clothing and a few rations, and tasked with surviving four days in the wilderness on their own. A century earlier, the Donner Party had failed a similar test, but Ted and his fellow Marines made it through. In Korea, Williams was assigned to Marine Fighting Squadron 311, known as the Tomcats. The squad consisted of about 35 fighter pilots like Ted, plus some 500 support personnel, whose job it was to help get those hotshot flyboys in the air, land them safely, feed them, and fix their planes. 
Every pilot in the unit wore a leather bomber jacket bearing the squadron's logo, a cartoon of Sylvester the Cat riding a bomb like Slim Pickens in Dr. Strangelove, which, by the way, wouldn't come out for another decade or so. The Tomcats were stationed at Air Base K-3 in the southeast corner of the Korean Peninsula. From there, they flew bombing raids toward enemy lines 200 miles away. It was dangerous work. A few months before Williams got there, 12 planes had taken off on a bombing raid, but didn't have enough fuel to make it back. Six of the 12 made emergency landings at another base. The other six were never seen again. Later, it was discovered they had lost visibility in the fog, and all six planes had flown, one right after the other, into the side of a mountain. Even if you could see where you were going, you were likely to be shot at from the ground by anti-aircraft fire. A couple of days after Williams arrived, a burning plane crash-landed on its return to base. At first, everyone thought the pilot had ejected in time. Then they dragged out a shoe with a foot in it, Williams later wrote. Oh Christ, he was mangled. The worst thing I'd ever seen. Even more than the danger, Williams hated the accommodations. It was a real dog box, he wrote of the barracks where he and his fellow pilots slept. Cold and damp and awful. The housing was constructed of corrugated metal and plywood, with masking tape used to seal up the cracks and keep out the biting wind. Sandbags were piled on the roof to keep it from blowing off. Heat was a kerosene stove in the middle of the room. Captain Williams slept on a jerry-rigged mattress made of old jet tires. Korean women did the soldiers' laundry, and Ted and his bunkmates gave a nine-year-old boy some spare change to clean the latrine and keep the bunkhouse clean. Eventually, Williams gifted the kid a bicycle. Much to Ted's delight, though, the base did have a makeshift darkroom at one end of a Quonset hut, and Ted quickly commandeered it although he had to use a Bunsen burner to thaw out the developing chemicals every day. Always a photography nerd, he became the base's photo guru, showing his fellow servicemen how to operate their cameras and develop their film. During his downtime, he'd borrow a Jeep and drive through the South Korean countryside, taking photos of people and landscapes. He'd usually take a fishing rod along, too. Williams was in a melancholy mood for most of the five months he was in Korea. He complained about the dreary weather. He wrote to a friend that he expected to be killed in action. He told anyone who asked that even if he survived, he probably would never play baseball again. He heard from pals back home that his wife was living the high life, partying with other men in Miami nightclubs. On one such occasion, her picture was even printed in the paper. Williams' fellow Marines, even the ones who liked him, thought of him as a loner, always off in the darkroom or sitting by himself in the corner. Still, he got along with most everybody, as long as they didn't try to blow smoke up his ass. Williams had little respect for the camp's leadership, who were constantly fawning over him, inviting him to dinners, and using him as a PR prop. He preferred the company of ordinary soldiers. He demanded, and usually received, no special treatment. His fellow Marines playfully called him Bush, as in Bush Leaguer. He hated talking baseball, but he'd talk your ear off about fishing. There are many stories of soldiers striking up a friendship with Williams and not finding out he was a famous ball player until days or weeks later. He stayed away from the baseball diamond as a rule of thumb, although he was occasionally cajoled into hitting fungos to the guys. 
Ted got along famously with one soldier in particular, a straight-arrow major who bunked in the room next door. Like Ted, Major John Glenn didn't drink and rarely hung out at the officers' club. A college dropout and a truly gifted pilot, Glenn was called Magnetass by his fellow Marines for his propensity for getting shot at. One time, the squadron was given a week of rest and relaxation in Japan. Most of the Tomcats jokingly referred to this R&R time as INI for intoxication and intercourse. They'd drink beer for a few pennies a glass, and then they'd pay the local women 50 cents for a roll in the hay. But Ted Williams and John Glenn usually passed on the debauchery. Their peers derisively dubbed them temples and shriners because they spent their week of R&R touring the temples and shrines of Japan. Williams and Glenn remained close after their military days, and Ted, of course, was thrilled nine years later when old Magnetass became the first American astronaut to orbit the Earth. The K-3 base was kept in a state of constant readiness, which meant at all times, 24 hours a day, there were at least two pilots sitting on the runway in their cockpits, ready to take off at a moment's notice. This was actually the most dreaded part of a pilot's duty, sitting out there for two hours in the freezing cold. After a pilot got in the air, constant snow on the ground made it difficult to see one's intended targets, but that was only a problem for firing your machine guns. The bombs themselves were radar-controlled. In February 1953, the still-green Williams was assigned to fly what was technically his third combat mission but the first one that would put him in any real danger. The objective was to fly into North Korea and obliterate a supply stronghold near Kiyomipo, a steel manufacturing city of 50,000 people. A whopping 200 planes, including 35 from K-3 base, engaged in the largest airstrike of the year. Those 35 planes from Ted's base alone fired 5,830 bullets and dropped 369 bombs that day, destroying 96 buildings. For this mission, Williams was part of a division consisting of four Panther fighter jets. His plane flew right behind the division leader, and when they spotted their target, a supposed hand grenade factory, they began to dive. Williams could see people on the ground below scattering for cover from the machine guns he was firing at them. Two brave souls fought back, spraying small arms fire into the air, although it would take a really lucky hit to disable one of the American planes. Finally, as their jets dove precipitously low, about a thousand feet off the ground, Williams and his division dropped their payload of bombs. As soon as that happened, Ted Williams' world went dark. Williams later wrote that if anyone ever made a movie about his life, it should open with the few seconds that followed. The plane is flying, slow and sunny, and then bang, wham, boom, the biggest goddamn explosion ever on the screen. I mean, boom! And the screen goes dark. Dark. For maybe 10 seconds, there's nothing. And then when it comes back, there's the ballpark and the crowd roaring. But for Williams to hear the roar of the crowd again, 
he would first have to make it back alive. The stick stiffened up and was shaking, he wrote. All the red lights were on in the plane, and the damn thing started to shake. There are so many lights on a jet that when anything goes seriously wrong, the lights almost blind you. I was in serious trouble. The violent shaking of his control stick told Ted that the jet had lost its hydraulics. The division leader, seen Williams's plane trailing a stream of smoke, fuel, and hydraulic fluid behind it, radioed to him to bail out, but the blast had knocked out Ted's radio so he couldn't hear. One of the other jets then pulled alongside Williams and, using hand signals for communication, motioned, follow me. That plane, piloted by one Lieutenant Larry Hawkins, tried to lead Williams back to safety, although he had no idea at the time that it was Ted Williams at the controls. After reaching South Korean airspace, the smart move would have been for Williams to ditch his plane into Kiyongi Bay, or failing that, to eject and parachute down to the ground. Ignoring Lieutenant Hawkins's frantic hand signals, Williams did neither. He was determined to land the plane on the runway at base K-13 near Seoul. As they neared the base, Williams opened his wheel-well doors and tried to put his landing gear down, and the plane immediately erupted into a giant fireball. Not only had the attack knocked his landing gear out of commission, but opening the wheel doors had allowed an immense amount of oxygen to enter and feed the fire. Williams couldn't see the underside of his plane, of course, but he alertly sensed that opening the wheel-well doors had only made things worse, so he closed them again. He would have to try to land without wheels. Williams brought the plane down on its bare steel belly with the hellish sound of scraping metal at high speed, alerting everyone on base that a crash landing had occurred. For more than a mile, the plane skidded and screeched down the runway, shooting a trail of sparks behind it. Somehow, Williams avoided plowing into the fire crew and the other vehicles on the runway. As the plane slowed, he yanked the cord that was supposed to open his cockpit, but it wouldn't budge. That was disabled, too. So he used the emergency ejector to blow the canopy off. With the jet still crawling to a stop, Williams scrambled out onto the wing, parachute still strapped to his back, and jumped down to the pavement. Fearing the explosion that would come when the fire reached the fuel tank, he ran for cover as quickly as he could. Decades later, those who were there would still marvel at the speed with which Williams scrambled to safety after exiting the plane. I never saw a guy move that fast in all my life, Lieutenant Hawkins said. As Williams reached safety, the base chaplain ran out onto the runway, spread his hands wide, palms down, and shouted, Safe! Later, the chaplain would admit, I've been waiting my whole life to do that. Ted's plane never did explode. The leak was bad enough that by the time he landed, his fuel was almost gone, so the panther just sat there on the runway and burned to a crisp. Williams's only injuries were a skinned knee and sore ankles from his leap onto the runway. After a combat mission, it was base policy to serve each returning pilot a double shot of whiskey. Williams, usually a non-drinker, was whisked away to the officer's club, where he downed four shots. That evening, before going to bed, he looked up at the board where the next day's schedule was posted. He would be flying another combat mission the next morning at 0800 hours. To this day, nobody really knows what hit Ted Williams' Panther jet. 
He always believed it was small arms fire, essentially people on the ground firing their pistols or rifles into the air. And that's the way it officially went into the books. But some believed it might have been shrapnel from the bombs dropped by Williams himself, which could fly high enough in the air to puncture his plane. That was a common occurrence on bombing raids, especially when a pilot dove a little too close to the ground. Even more likely is the possibility that Williams was hit by shrapnel from bombs dropped by the plane right in front of him. That jet was piloted by a major who had a reputation for diving steeply and flying too low, and Williams, the greenhorn, was following right on his tail. We'll never know precisely what happened, and at this point, it hardly matters. After being shot down, Ted Williams stayed in Korea for four more months and flew 36 more combat missions, including one in which his plane was shot full of holes, but he managed to land without incident. He dropped napalm and thousand-pound bombs on bunkers, supply huts, bridges, and the caves where North Korean soldiers took shelter. On eight missions, he served as John Glenn's wingman. In June, Williams flew his last mission, Shortly thereafter, he was sent to a hospital ship with serious ear problems. He hadn't been able to hear properly since his third combat mission, when the change in pressure from his plane's swift altitude drop blew out his eardrums. Often he would wake up in the morning and find blood on his pillow. After a few months of this, he was sent back to the U.S. for medical evaluation, although there were whispers that Williams' superiors thought he was a pain in the ass, and the medical reasons were just a pretext to send him home. Regardless, he was nearing the end of his service anyway. Most fighter pilots were rotated out after 40 combat missions. Williams had flown 39. He got home in time to throw out the first pitch at the Major League All-Star game. Two weeks after that, the Korean War ended. Five days after that, on August 1st, 1953, Captain Theodore S. Williams was officially discharged from duty. He was finished with Korea. But then again, he said... I wonder if anyone ever really leaves Korea, even when you're thousands of miles away from its filth and mud and its nauseating stench no longer fills your nostrils. Despite his earlier predictions of retirement, Williams returned to the Red Sox almost immediately, although his hands were so sore he could only take batting practice for 10 minutes at a time. Playing the rest of the 1953 season, he batted over 400 for the second time, albeit in just 110 plate appearances. After Korea, Williams played seven more full seasons, winning two more batting titles and making the All-Star team every year. His slugging percentage was an astounding 634, precisely the same as it had been before his career was interrupted. He retired in 1960, famously hitting a home run on the final swing of his career. He was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1966, and the Fishing Hall of Fame in 1999. To the end, Ted Williams never regained the hearing he'd lost in one ear, and he certainly never forgot his time as a hotshot pilot in Korea, which were the hardest five months of his life. And the proudest. This episode of Fade Away was written, produced, and edited by Eric Enders. 
Don't forget to listen to part two, available as a separate download from wherever you downloaded this one. Special thanks to the authors whose published work was helpful in researching today's show, including Lee Montville, John Underwood, and especially Bill Nowlin, author of the book Ted Williams at War. If you enjoyed today's episode, you should absolutely check out Bill's book, which is astonishingly well-researched and packed with hundreds of photos of Ted Williams in military life, most of them never before published. We'll put up a link to it on our website. Speaking of our website, it's located at fadeawaypodcast.com, and that's where you can check out the episode box score, which contains the full list of sources and music credits for today's show, as well as a pretty cool picture of Ted Williams and John Glenn hanging out in their marine bomber jackets. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at fadeawaypod. And of course, you can subscribe to the show, rate, and review it on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and remember, you could look it up. Go fishing